everybody. Welcome back to the Because We Went to Therapy podcast. I'm Ashley. I'm Emily. And we have an amazing guest today. We're just going to get right into it. We have Dr. Menager, licensed therapist, and especially working on perfectionism. And she has a great Instagram account that we'll plug down in our notes below that you should definitely give a follow. We talk about all things perfectionism, boundaries, self-compassion, and how perfectionism can kind of, you know, sink into all the different parts of our life. So let's go ahead and get into it. First of all, thank you so much for having me here. It's so nice to connect with you and your audience. So I'm Dr. Menige. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist here in Los Angeles. And in my practice, we work with adults and late teens. We do individual and couples therapy on all sorts of mental health issues, such as anxiety, OCD, addiction, depression, life transitions, and couples issues. The way I started to get involved in perfectionism started on a personal level. About a decade ago, I read Dr. Brenna Brown's Gifts of Imperfection, and I had my own rude awakening on how much perfectionism <laughs> was playing a role in my never-ending anxiety and feeling guilty, like I'm always you know, letting somebody down and I'm just not doing enough. So I was obviously working on myself, and then in terms of therapy, what I start to see is over the course of the years, how much also perfectionism was playing in other people's mental health journeys as well. Typically, we know people come to therapy because they will complain about an emotional state, right? They will say, I'm feeling really depressed lately. I'm having a lot of panic attack or they have a relationship problem. Well, that's what brings people to therapy as we, again, work on these issues and unpack them, I start to see so much of perfectionism in other people's lives as well. And I've come to see that perfectionism is a mental health issue. And so we really need to, if we're working on bettering ourselves, we can just treat the anxiety and depression and not look at the perfectionism that was feeding into that. Or let's say we're working on eating disorder and addiction, and we, we can obviously treat those behavioral patterns and yet, if we don't work on the perfectionism, I feel like we really haven't done done all the work that we need to do. So that's how it really became part of like my mission or passion to to talk about it kind of anywhere and everywhere. Whoever lets me speak, I'll, I'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah, well, we're so glad to have you here today talking about it. And it, it's cool that like they stem from your own journey. And also we are huge Brene Brown fans. So we love that you read her book and that was your awakening. Because um, yeah, we're huge fans. And yeah, I feel like it, when you have a personal background in something, it can help you um, be like, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to help other people re recover from, you call yourself the perfectionist recovery, right? Or what? I'm botching it. <laughs> yes, yes. Recovering perfectionist. Yes. 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 Um, so can you tell us a little bit about like what, because I feel like not everyone's probably heard of perfectionism, but maybe people don't understand like what it is. Can you give us a little bit of information on what perfectionism is, like some symptoms or whatnot? Definitely. So perfectionism by definition means that we want to pursue perfection in a sense of we are in, we're in a quest to do things perfectly. However, what happens when we try to do things perfectly is, is that when we are short of, any, short of that and we have 
mistakes and flaws and errors, we then start to dismiss them, reject them, or we like to hide them. And, and ultimately, we're all imperfect human beings. So when we're trying to do things perfectly, ultimately, we are starting to reject parts of ourselves that are imperfect. So it, what it looks like is like, you know, I hate that part of me that like, I hate this body part of me. Like I hate the way my ears are or my, you know, belly is. It could be, I hate that I have an accent. So there are these parts of us, if, they, if we deem them less than perfect, we start to reject it. We start to dismiss it, hide it, run away from it. And it ultimately creates a war within ourselves. This is why I believe perfectionism is a mental health issue because as you guys, you know, imagine when you have a war within yourself where you are constantly hating, judging different parts of yourself rather than accepting them as you as they are, that will that will stop you from feeling fulfilled, feeling good enough, having self-acceptance, having self-compassion. I think it's really interesting that you bring up perfectionism can come in like a million different ways or different topics, whether it is body image or something like with school, for example. And I think naively, when I used to think about what the term perfectionism was, I was thinking, oh, you're trying to be like perfect, prim and proper in every kind of category in your life. And you make a good point that it doesn't have to be like with everything, it doesn't have to be, you know, every single bucket of your life. It could just be focusing on something on your body or some, you know, just one subject, or it can be a coping mechanism for a multitude of things. Definitely. I mean, luckily today we talk a lot more on perfectionism, but I think in the past we misunderstood perfectionism because we thought that perfectionists are just, you know, high achievers. They are the type A people. They are the very organized ones. And then we would then say, what's so bad about that? You know, they just, you know, they just have a lot of goals. They multitask. Good for them. First of all, perfectionism, yes, for some people, it can show up as you being highly organized, very detail oriented, and you may take on a lot of tasks and and do multiple things at the same time. And other times perfectionism, which is again, what I saw in therapy is it can show up very differently for other people. Sometimes perfectionism causes a lot of procrastination. Perfectionism causes indecision, delaying tasks. And the difference between those two types of personalities, you may say, okay, on one hand, somebody is a go-getter and then the other person is freezing or procrastinating, quote unquote, lazy. How are they both perfectionists? And the answer to that is they both have the same unrealistic high expectations of themselves. They just respond to it so differently. They're both kind of responding to it and compensating for it differently. So one person would say, all right, so if I think I have to reach for the stars, then I'm going to wake up five in the morning and get going. So that would be, again, your quote unquote classic or stereotypical perfectionist. Another person with the same unhealthy belief for themselves, expectations, actually gets flooded by those and they freeze, they get paralyzed by that. And what they do is distract themselves by getting on the phone or watching next Netflix for hour. And what I would typically hear from them if I were to ask what happened, what stops them is 
if it's not going to be perfect, then why bother? If it's not going to be perfect, then let me wait until I can do it perfectly. And then the next thing you know, they've been waiting for weeks to apply for that job, to work yeah. on their resume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so fascinating how you talk about like the two different type, and I'm sure there's more, but like those different types of ways that people, um, perfectionism can show up for people and how it, a lot of it stems from what I'm hearing is unhealthy beliefs that they have inside themselves. Definitely, yes. they. Yes, they have a most definitely in the they have a highly unrealistic expectations of themselves to always achieve more, do more and be more. So, for example, what that means is if they achieve something, they would ask themselves, well, can I do it better next time? Like, let's say that they were running a marathon and they did. My husband is getting ready for Ironman. So that's on my mind. So let's say they're getting ready for a marathon. And they did it in three hours, their perfections, and we'll say, well, let's next time let's do two hours. Or let's say we have, we have somebody working on their resume this weekend and they come on Monday, they worked on their resume and you're ch chatting with them and you start to see their feeling still disappointed or discouraged. And you're like, what's wrong? You know, you completed your task. Well, it took me the whole weekend. It shouldn't have taken me that long. If I was really smart, it wouldn't have taken me that long. So their perfectionism says, why did it take you that, that long? Why did you have such a hard time? As if those are signs of imperfection and therefore signs of inadequacy. So along with having these high expectations of yourself, in the core, perfectionists believe they are not enough as they are. Having said that, I always encourage people to really individualize to their own journey because for some people, it might be that I am not good enough, like good enough mom. And for other people, it might be that I'm not smart enough. And for somebody else, I'm not athletic enough. I am not funny enough. I'm not attractive enough. So we really want every person to understand what is it, where in your sense of identity, self-identity, do you not feel enough as you are? That is causing you to seek perfectionism to mask that or quote unquote fix that. Got it. Got it. That's very and interesting. Yeah. Sorry, Ashley, go I was, ahead. No, you're fine. Because I was thinking about, for example, like uh, my profession, I'm a cycle instructor and I get really, really bad anxiety before I, I teach, you know, multiple times a week, but I still get anxiety before every class because I'm like, it has to be perfect. You know, the music has to be perfect. The routine has to be perfect. My attitude has to be great. And now I'm like, huh, I wonder what I'm trying to, you know, cover up or like what vulnerabilities I have. So I'm going to have to talk to my therapist about that this week. <laughs> You're already helping us, Dr. Menage. Yes. Oh, <laughs> thank us. you. And thank you for sharing that example. It's such a, you know, such a relatable example where whatever that we are, we are, participating, perfectionism latches on to things we value. And that's the other thing I always like to have people understand this. For example, one of the things I share about my personal experience is that I came to the United States two weeks before my 15th birthday. So speaking of therapy, it gave my therapist and I a lot to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I definitely know that that life transition and some of the 
changes that happen in the roles between me and my parents where I became, you know, the translator for them. And, and these are, you know, very typical experience as an immigrant. Nonetheless, they played a big role in me trying to be perfect and to fit in. So now that I'm in my late thirties, people tend to ask me, oh, you must, you know, be over your perfectionism. And that's never the case because anytime I'm starting a new chapter, anytime I am pursuing something new or something that I care about, my perfectionism will show up and will try to convince me that it has to be perfect for it to be meaningful. I have to do it perfect for it to have a value. And I need to really keep challenging that. For an example, five years ago, I became a mom for the first time and it was right there. You know, I had to be very good at sleep training my daughter. I had to breastfeed her 24 seven if I was, you know, really good mom. And so it's something that I think we always going to feel triggered by, or um, there are going to be, again, chapters in our lives, things we pursue that is going to trigger perfectionism. And we really need to be self-aware and remind ourselves that our worth is not dependent on how perfectly we do something. Hmm. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And thank you for sharing a little bit about your own experience coming to the U.S. and how that impacted you. And I'm a trauma therapist, so I'm always curious, like, where does this stuff stem from? Like, how do people develop perfectionism? How do they develop these unhealthy beliefs about themselves or never feeling enough? And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about, and obviously everyone's different, but if you could talk a little bit about where you see perfectionism stem from, like some of their roots. Definitely. And I think that's a very human, you know, question to ask ourselves, right? Why is this happening? What caused it? I want to know the why. The first right. thing I always like to ask people to or tell people is that we are complex human beings. So it's best to look at sequence of events that may have shaped your perfectionism. Please don't just look at this conversation in all or nothing terms and believe that there must be one traumatic or significant event. It's more likely that there were sequence of events, places, and people that have reinforced or rewarded perfectionism. And it's okay to obviously start with childhood. Uh, definitely, we know that parent-child relationship is very significant. So when you look at your childhood, I would encourage people to look at their environment. They, they can most definitely explore their parent-child relationship. This does not mean that a parent caused perfectionism, but they may have played a role uh, because these are some people's realities. They may have what we call demanding parents who, who measured everything by their accomplishment. It, it, like they, the, 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 you know, when they came home uh, from a soccer game, if they won, their parents were in a great mood. If they lost, their, their, their parents were in a bad mood. These are some people's realities. So I definitely want to honor that and acknowledge that if that was part of your childhood, yes, that plays a role. Uh, we want to look at, again, they could be demanding parents, what we call distracted parents, or parents who have their own perfectionism that they're not working on. So mm -hmm. we can look at some of those childhood experiences. Moving on to school, we definitely want to look at you know, how teachers or coaches or other mentors may have rewarded or reinforced perfectionism in academia with grades and also currently with social media i i feel for all the adolescents where they are feeling this constant comparison on 
you know, what they're driving or where they're going for a vacation, summer vacation, and what they're wearing. So that kind of social comparison, I think also causes people or influences them to keep raising the bar for themselves. And that's what perfectionism is. It's like keep raising the bar where let's see if you can smile better in the next photo you take. Let's see if you can go to a cooler restaurant and again, share it on your stories. So I definitely social media and, and any kind of, again, social setting may reinforce work setting that, you know, as we go into adulthood, we want to look at relationships we're in that may reinforce perfectionism. So they all, I think, are equally important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Indeed. Do you have advice for, I know we were just talking about like how parents can sometimes project their perfectionism onto their kids, like whether it's with, you know, sporting events or grades and whatnot. Do you have any advice for people that might be in parent or even like a mentorship role to how to kind of not, just to make sure that we're not projecting that onto the younger generation? Most definitely. And I think the... I'm going to start with the hard truth here, which is you got to do the work on yourself, right? You got to understand because somebody doesn't, there's no way that a person, and I'm a mom, so I'll go ahead and take myself as an example. You know, as if you are struggling with perfectionism as a mom, there's no way that you were not dealing with that in other areas of your life and magically it showed up in parenting. That doesn't happen. It probably was there before. And parenting, as I said earlier, perfectionism latches onto things you value. And because you care so much about raising your child in the, you know, most emotionally supportive way, your perfectionism latched onto that. So again, you got to do the work on yourself. You can't just say, I never dealt with perfectionism and it showed up in my parenting out of the blue. I think that's very unlikely or as a, you know, coach, as a mentor. So again, you got to do the work on yourself. How come perfectionism uh, is, is here, you know, what happened? How was it maybe part of your life before having understand that the other thing we can do in front of the child is, and again, there's no shortcuts here. You have to do things imperfectly in front of the child or in front of the young adult, the young, uh, the teen is that you have to do things imperfectly in front of them. And as we know, you know, we have to lead by example. We need to show them how we tolerate making mistakes. We need to show them, for example, another topic I talk about on social media is emotional perfectionism. So this idea that we falsely believe, quote unquote, positive emotions are acceptable, therefore perfect, and negative emotions are unacceptable, sign of weakness, therefore they're imperfections. So as a parent or as a coach, mentor, you really want to model to those around you how you sit with difficult emotions, being afraid, feeling tired as a mom, for example, feeling scared, and model how all emotions are welcomed. And there's no such thing as good versus bad emotions. So not just about making mistakes, but showing your human, humane side to those around you that are learning from you. Yeah. And that's what I was, you said it right at the end there, but that's what I was thinking the whole time, like showing your humanness, 
right? Like there's there's no humanness without imperfections. And so be, to be able to show that to people around us and to ourselves, I imagine would create such a better environment because if we're constantly trying to always raise the bar and nothing's ever good enough, I can't imagine that we have a good relationship with ourselves, right? Like we have to, I imagine we have to feel really bad about ourselves, even if it's just one part of ourselves, we still, I, you know, as a therapist can understand how that's going to impact not only your relationship with yourself, but could also impact your relationship to other people. Definitely. And that's the, again, the trap with perfectionism, that when somebody is dealing with perfectionism from outside, they may seem such a driven, ambitious, go-getter, motivated, energetic, but inside they're constantly beating themselves up because nothing they do is ever good enough. They are constantly afraid of screwing up, making mistakes, disappointing somebody, missing out on something. And then they are also feeling, again, anxious. Like you mentioned, they're struggling with insomnia. They might be struggling with panic disorder or panic attacks, rumination. So what we see outside is not really what perfectionism really is inside. And same with the other version of perfectionism we were talking about, those that procrastinate again from outside you may think gosh they just don't care about anything if only they cared maybe they will pursue something they just seem so numb or they just seem like they don't care about anything but again inside they're constantly uh, worried about worried about something and afraid that they are going to be disappointing people same worry same insecurities um, true for all perfectionists and in relationships what's also again such a trap with perfectionism is our perfectionism will say to us, if you are the perfect partner, if you are the perfect friend, then your relationships will be amazing. Your relationships will be, you know, you, they, your relationship will blossom and they will be great. So just make sure you are the perfect girlfriend, perfect wife, perfect best friend, perfect daughter, which means you put their needs before yours. You are always available. You never say no, always saying yes. You never delegate. And you just want to be what they want you to be. You never confront because you say, well, they look tired. I don't want to bring something up. So constantly, again, putting their needs and having poor boundaries. And here's the trap. You do all of this because your perfectionism say, if you're the perfect partner, you have the perfect relationship. And guess what happens actually? What ends up truly happening is that you feel so disconnected from your partner. You don't have any authenticity in the relationship because the other person never knows what's going through your head. The other person never knows how you truly feel. Oh, you didn't want to eat at that Italian restaurant last night, but you didn't say anything. Well, there you go. Like, that's the thing with perfectionism. We, uh, and Brenna Brown has a wonderful quote, which I won't try to say it because I'm going to butcher it, but it's it's along the lines of like, she explains how we use perfectionism as a shield, as an armor, but what it actually yeah. causes is a lot of disconnection, as a, a lot of isolation and, and, and just as like toxic resentment. So all of a sudden you're resentful, you're angry, you hate your partner, you hate your best friend because they are not there for you. And again, it takes two to tango. I'm not saying it's all your fault, but yeah. I'm just asking people to consider how their perfectionism 
might be creating more disconnection than they thought. They, they, they initially think, okay, if I'm just perfect, I will be happy. And guess what? You are miserable. You're unhappy. So maybe we should yeah. let go of that perfectionism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let go of the perfectionism and be able to be more authentic to yourself and authentic in your connections to other people. Yes, yes. And I want to maybe acknowledge how difficult this will be for some people because I I know and I I I know that we pursue perfectionism because like we talked earlier we're afraid we're afraid of rejection we're afraid of disappointing other people and so asking people to let go of that perfectionism is actually going to make them feel very exposed you're going to feel more at risk well, hold on, if I let go of my armor and my shield, now I'm more exposed, I'm more likely to get hurt, hurt, I'm more likely to lose. And we want to validate that fear and move past that. It's like, I can feel that fear and still be my imperfect self. I'm afraid you may not like what I have to say. And yet I still have to say it because I have to be authentic to myself. So it's not about dismissing and trying to sugarcoat that everything is going to be great when you let go of perfectionism. That's not true. It's going to be rocky road because you had perfectionism for a reason. It was it was yeah. serving a purpose for you. Like, what if people won't like me if I'm not perfect? What if I get I don't get the job of my dream if I don't get all the A's and do this presentation perfectly? So yeah. we want to honor those fears and still encourage ourselves to do what's best for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And have you noticed with the uh, different populations and age groups that you work with, is there a, you know, a noticeable difference between like the different genders and ages of what kind of their perfectionism like hinges on or maybe the topics that it latches to? I would say that it is, again, very individualized to their lives. So currently we are, for example, like we work with late teens, um, like juniors and seniors in high school. Understandably, a lot of their world is wrapped around academics and getting into college. So a lot of their perfectionism will be wrapped around that. Um, again, if you are somebody who is a parent or just became a parent, like let's say you're in your first year of parenting, so that would be what your perfectionism will latch onto. Uh, let's say you just started dating or you feel like you found the love of your life. Um, and, and especially you found this perfect or wonderful partner after years of being single or after years of failed relationships, then your perfectionism will definitely latch onto this relationship that is very special for you. So I think it's really kind of looking at Things that you're involved in and things that that's part of your life, that's what your perfectionism will go after. I definitely want to acknowledge too for minority groups, uh, whether you are a minority because of your racial or ethnic or religious affiliation or your minority group because of your sexual orientation or physical disability, um, there definitely is a chronic need for a chronic pressure to be perfect to, again, fight the stigmas that's around uh, that group that you're part of um, and with the ongoing 
you know, legal issues or legal things that might be happening, again, in relation to your uh, group that you're part of, I, I would say that, that, that there will always be some, you know, pressure to be perfect, um, to again, uh, earn your place, which is untrue because you're worthy of your place in this world, no matter whether, you know, it has nothing to do with doing things perfectly, but that is the story we tell ourselves because I'm an immigrant. I have to, again, show people that I, I, I don't take it granted to be here. Um, or because I'm a, again, a, a mind, I, 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 part I am a member of a specific sexual orientation group. I have to, yeah be more intelligent or be more professional. Otherwise people won't take me seriously. Again, these are some of the false stories we tell ourselves that plays a role in our pursuit of perfectionism. And I would say those are obviously more chronic things because you're always going to be part of that minority group. Sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. And no, and that, gosh, that's, I mean, all of that sounds really difficult, right? And so it makes sense why people would want to latch on to things that protect them. Right. And I, um, there's, perfectionism seems like such a complex, there's so much wrapped up in it, right? There's so many different factors that can play into it. And earlier I heard you saying, like, let's do this and take the fear with us. And I, I really like utilizing the word and in um, all types of therapy. And so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that. I would love to. I would love to. And I'm so glad you <laughs> mentioned that. <laughs> um, I would have to give a little bit of psychology jargon to your listeners just for a quick minute so that yes, they let's do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll keep it brief, but I always like to do justice, right, to these tools. Um, so that particular tool, this idea of using and in our in our thinking is uh, is is actually called dialectical thinking, which is this idea that two opposite things can coexist. And it's such a wonderful tool because sometimes we are thinking and feeling two opposite things. Um, for an example, I'm afraid and I'm excited. I am grateful and I'm sad. I am, I'm doubting myself and I feel confident in myself. So dialectical thinking allows us to not pick or not choose sides and combine and integrate all parts of ourselves. And maybe coming back to perfectionism, the way that, again, I use dialectical thinking in helping people reframe their self-esteem and their self-identity is I am talented and there are things I'm not good at. I have strengths and I have weaknesses. I have, I, I, I am, again, good at certain things and I need help in other areas of my life. In relationships, I love you and I need my alone time with you. I love you and I cannot be there for you right now. So when we allow those two opposite things to coexist, it becomes so much easier to be nice to ourselves and have that self-compassion. And in relationship, it gets so much easier to set those boundaries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, like I said, I love using and in all types of therapy. And you mentioned um, self-compassion and boundaries, and Ashley and I are huge on self-compassion. And so could you talk a little bit more about how we utilize self-compassion and boundaries in navigating perfectionism? So the reason that, if I may explain, first of all, why self-compassion is so important for those of us that want to work on our perfectionism is because, as I was saying earlier, perfectionists are actually their worst, worst critic. 
again, from outside, it may not seem like this because, again, if you have that more classic version of perfectionism where you're doing everything on time, maybe you're even 10 steps ahead and nobody thinks you need help with anything. So people assume you must not have any problems inside. As I was saying earlier, we are our worst critic because we're constantly dissatisfied with ourselves and we're constantly dissatisfied with the end result or the effort. So when perfectionists have chronic negative self-talk, chronic self-judgment and self-criticism, we really want to adopt self-compassion to combat those negative self-talk. And as you know, self-compassion by definition means is to have an inner dialogue where we are compassionate, understanding, empathetic, um, and forgiving towards ourselves. So it's pretty much the act of giving compassion, grace to ourselves, especially when we're going through an imperfect moment. Probably yes. that's the key here is it's pretty easy to be nice to myself when all is going good. But let's, right. you know, I raise my voice at my daughter and I use in parenting, they say, don't compare your kids to other kids. And then next thing, well, do you see your friend is sitting here eat, or your cousin is eating her food so easily? And I'm just like, oh, I just did that. So compassion is especially necessary when we have an imperfect moment where we fell short of our values or we... Again, this idea that I knew I know something and I may still not do it well. So in those moments, yeah. having compassion means is forgiving ourselves for that mistake or that imperfect moment, uh, reminding ourselves again, these are I should also give credit words to Dr. Kristen Neff, which I'm sure you guys have talked about yes. her in your in your <laughs> episode. Um, she's just such a wonderful expert, leading expert on self-compassion. She always encourages that when we are practicing compassion for ourselves, one of the elements is to remind ourselves we're not alone in what we're going through, that other yes. people struggle with these things, other parents make these mistakes, or, um, and that um, we don't, like, for example, let's say you may feel like imperfection is getting rejected by a job, and you may have to remind yourself, like, many people get rejected or, or are told no, that's part of the journey and that's part of finding the right fit for myself. Those kinds of like kind, understanding, empathetic statement to ourselves is part of self-compassion. Again, that's very important for perfectionism because we want to challenge the negative self-talk that, that goes along with perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, challenge the negative self-talk. And I really like the emphasis you said on forgiving yourself right because we're all going to make mistakes and so how can we how can we do better if we're not learning from those mistakes while also allowing ourselves to do that right to be able to make mistakes and to be like you know what that's part of being human and everyone you know it's like miley cyrus her song right that was like out like 15 years ago whatever like everyone makes mistakes it's so true like nobody's we, perfect yeah nobody's perfect yeah. because everyone does make yeah <laughs> everyone does make mistakes and if we can't allow ourselves to do that then yeah there's that trap like it's just going to be too much if you're never going to allow yourself to make mistakes so I think the trick with, we you know, obviously we all heard those phrases, right? Everybody makes mistakes. But I think sometimes it's really hard for us to believe that because on not maybe day to day, but throughout a week, we don't really practice sharing our mistakes. 
and I get it, you know, social media is supposed to be up uplifting. So there's a lot of positive messages post there. And I get it. Social media sometimes is entertaining. So we want to watch people dancing. I get that. That's all good. Um, but we really want to, in our personal life, learn to talk about our mistakes with people. And that could mean calling a friend when you're having an imperfect moment calling your family when you get rejected from a job or, or once a, once a week with your romantic partner, having a, having a, you know, conversation, uninterrupted conversation about what you've been struggling that week, because we can say everybody makes mistakes, but if nobody shares it, how am I going to know somebody else is making a mistake? So again, we need to kind of talk the talk and walk the walk and share let people know that that we had an imperfect moment like and and i'm just sharing this as an example not to compliment myself but whenever i am with other moms and we're checking in i am i make an effort to talk about having a hard time with my daughter i make an effort to talk about how i'm still sleep training her and she's five and a half years old so i think it's really important not to just keep conversations on the surface and be you know share something and obviously it's a personal decision and definitely trust is a big piece like if it's not someone you trust and if they're going to be somebody who will unfortunately use it against you i'm not telling i'm not suggesting you tell them everything but definitely make sure that you're talking about mistakes and sharing them with people in your life as a way of seeing it that everybody does make a mistake mm -hmm. That's a great point. It. Right. And something I've been trying to do that is just really, really small in my own life is I'm trying not to apologize so much for everything. I'm like a chronic apologizer, like, oh, sorry, I'm late or oh, sorry, my house is kind of messy right now. If you come over, my car's messy, just all these different things. And then I'm like, all right, Ashley, try not to apologize for every single thing. Like, it's okay if your house is not perfectly tidy when a friend's stopping by like everybody is kind of like that so I think like you said if we try to normalize you know life not being picture perfect like we might see our best snapshots on social media and kind of in that more curated setting it's like this is just it makes it more normalized yeah. it, it really does and if it's okay I would like to you know kind of take your example and talk a little bit about people pleasing that is part of perfectionism because yes, please again, people, if you think perfectionism is just task oriented problem, that it doesn't show up in relationship, again, you will be missing a big piece of that. Because when you, when you recognize that perfectionism is just latching onto anything you value, it could be a job or it could be a relationship or it could be your health goals. And in relationships, Let's go with the basics here. Why do we, why is it important to give an apology? Because we make a mistake. So what defines mistake? What, how, you know, mistake is something that, again, of course, by definition, something that you do that's inappropriate, wrong, hurtful. However, when you're over apologizing, you probably, or any one of us here, have a skewed understanding of what a mistake is. And it stems from this idea that I must do everything perfectly, meaning, I must always be on time wherever I'm going. I should, you know, 
never be late in let's say returning a favor or if i borrowed money from a friend i must give it back to them right away and never say no always be available and then and then again if there's anything less than perfect like i was late or you came in and i didn't have any you know anything to give you because i didn't go grocery shopping or anything to you know offer then we as you said over apologize for our perceived imperfections and our perceived flaws that continues to reinforce this idea that we're not enough as we are and along with that what i also see along among perfectionism perfectionists is that we also have a really hard time accepting compliments so it's not that it's not only that we will magnify these imperfections like my house being messy sorry i don't have anything you know i don't i don't have much to you know offer you when you're over it's also about minimizing the positives so if your friend were to compliment you and you know give you an appraisal perfectionist will say well that wasn't a big deal i could have done that better that was easy there's that the, the, anybody could have done it so they shut down those compliments and will not allow people to celebrate them or will not allow people to um, acknowledge their positive qualities because in the mind of a perfectionist, any of those positive traits either could have been better or wasn't that hard to begin with. So don't make a big deal out of it. Get over it. It impacts so much of your life, right? If you can't receive a compliment, if you have to have this be going so well, everything has to be going well. Like it seems like it can just impact so much of your life. And what I was hearing you say is it's almost like we need to redefine what mistakes are, right? Because it's not that Ashley's house being messy is a mistake, yet for some reason we think it is a mistake, right? So I wonder if that's part of the work too, is to redefine like what actually is a mistake? Is it like when you uh, turn left and you're supposed to turn right when you mess up the directions? Like maybe that's a mistake, right? And that's not such a big deal versus like, yeah, it's not a mistake if you like are five minutes late because you overslept and you hit your alarm on accident or you got stuck at a stoplight. So you showed up late, like kind of like redefining what it means to make mistakes and then apologizing for the things that actually are mistakes. Yes. And I think you see with perfectionism, we also have a hard time prioritizing things when it comes to task. But I would say there's a hard time prioritizing here too, meaning you have to ask yourself which mistakes are, are, are requiring or deserving of an apology. Because all mistakes cannot be requiring apology. There has to be some separation here where, lack of a better, better word, big mistakes needs to be apologized, but small mistakes don't deserve an apology. Maybe you guys have seen this because I know I've seen this on social media, this wonderful, like it's kind of like a social skill post where it says, instead of saying, uh, I'm sorry, I'm late, tell the person, thank you for waiting for me. Mm -hmm. I can't think of the other examples that was in that post, but that's one that I remember. Like, I think those are a wonderful way of, for those quote unquote, small mistakes, you can still obviously recognize being late, but you can do it not from yeah. a place of apologizing, but from a place of, thank you for waiting for me. I got stuck in traffic. 
So again, I'm not suggesting that we don't give people explanation or acknowledge that they were waiting on us. It's just that the way right. we can do it, that doesn't have to be so like, I messed up. I am wrong. I am always doing this. I'm such a you know bad person. I'm such a bad friend, which again, that's what that low self-esteem is. I also wanted to suggest another idea around this mistake is I love sharing this idea with my clients in therapy about having a landing place for our mistakes. Obviously, this is figuratively speaking, but if they really need a box, go for it. But just imagine this, uh, kind of visualize this. I would like everyone to consider having a bucket that they can place mistakes that they make in life. Because here's what happens when I make a mistake, again, any mistake, professional, personal, as a wife, as a mom, doesn't matter. When I make a mistake, I tend to hold on to it. And I then what ends up doing is it's very heavy, or let's assume that it was, you know, it was something that's hot, so it's, it burns me or it weighs me down. But if I have a landing place where I say, here's what I would do after I process making a mistake, and I learn from it, like we discussed earlier, because I really want to understand, could I have done it differently? Is there a skill I forgot to use? Then I want to put it down. I wanted to put it down where it can rest for the rest of my life. It's not about forgetting that I made a mistake, because again, that would not serve me well as well. But it's not a, it's about this idea that I don't have to carry with me wherever I go. I need to say I make peace with you. I'm sorry I made this mistake. And maybe if I'm if I'm in that moment capable, maybe I can say thank you for happening because it wasn't for you. I wouldn't have learned X about myself. And here we go. I'm gonna lay, I'm gonna put you down and you're gonna be there. If I need to look at you or talk, you know, see, you know, look at you again or talk at, talk about you again, I'll come find you. But stop latching on to me. Like I need a resting yeah. place yeah. for my mistake. I love that because as a trauma therapist, I'm constantly trying to help people reduce the shame. And that's what I heard when you were talking is like placing the shame, letting go of it, right? Like we don't have to hold on to this shame of being human. We can make amends, of course, if we make mistakes and we can forgive ourselves and forgive other people, but we don't have to carry on to this shame. And because Brene Brown, she talks about the shame pool, right? And so if you're like, being weighted down by all these things that you feel are mistakes and that are horrible about you, that's going to be exhausting, right? So if we can let go of some of that and show up as humans, I imagine it can make such a big difference in how we relate to ourselves and other people. It, it really does. Yeah. It really does. I think that was beautiful how you put it, like, I'm going to put this over here in the corner and if I need this emotion later, like, I'll come find you. Because I think what I have struggled with and I've seen other people struggle with too is, oh, okay, if I put, if I don't have this emotion, if I kind of overcome it or work through it, like what's going to replace it? If I get rid of the perfectionism, what are these emotions that I could be feeling? And that's scary to not know, you know, with perfectionism, at least, you know, kind of, you've been going through it for years, you know, what that feeling is kind of like, but when you kind of shed that layer of it, and get vulnerable, you don't know exactly what's going to be in that place. So I think it was very comforting to know, like you said, you know, okay, I can come back to that later if it serves me, if I feel like it actually needs to, but let's, you know, just a constructive way to put it. Absolutely. And when it comes to emotions, 
we're allowed to take breaks from them. We're not supposed, you know, we don't have to sit with a difficult emotion nonstop in order to, you know, deal with it or in order to learn from it. I think we have to give ourselves break to, 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 again, take breaks from it. And that's the difference between, you know, because when we are avoiding emotion, we are turning our back to the emotion with the goal of never, ever going back to it or turning towards that emotion. Versus in this situation, what we're saying is we're mindfully aware that we're feeling an emotion, like feeling insecure, feeling doubtful, feeling scared of the unknown, feeling afraid of the uncertainty, uh, or feeling just overall pain because we just got rejected. And as you feel through those feelings, you can take a break too. You can put that emotion down and, and, and go do something else that soothes you or helps you feel calmer or more peaceful. And then you can return to that emotion again when you're ready to keep processing it. Yeah. Definitely. No one can feel emotions 24-7, right? That would be way too much for us to handle as humans. So yeah, taking breaks and having like a safe space to be able to process those emotions or a safe person, right? A lot of it, I think, um, is vulnerability, right? You said it, Ashley said it, being able to be vulnerable with ourselves and the people around us. And I also heard you talk like when you're talking about this, I'm hearing boundaries, right? And so maybe that's one of the last things that we can touch on is because I, I imagine like if you're recovering from perfectionism, you have to have boundaries. And so what does that look like when you're working with your clients? So I would like to first suggest that boundaries is an act of self-love. So we have to remember that setting boundaries is healthy for us. Setting boundaries is necessary for us. So then we can get comfortable with exploring our boundaries. So what I'm suggesting is that we first have to really change the way we think about boundaries, because often we are maybe again in previous relationships or early in our lives, we must have received or seen messages that boundaries, um, that it was wrong to set boundaries, that if you were again, a loyal friend, a loyal family member, you're always available for me. If you really love me, you would help me out with this. And so I think each and every one of us, in order to really set the right boundaries, we first have to accept or embrace and agree with that boundaries is oxygen of any relationship. And that boundaries is part of self-love. It's the it's something that I'm doing for myself, not against anybody. And, and if, and you start to, again, embrace boundaries, the next thing to do is understanding what kind of boundaries you may need to set, because it changes from relationship to relationship. And one of the things I always love to tell people is boundaries must be flexible. It needs Mm -hmm. to change from situation to situation. Like, for example, I'm not available this weekend, but it doesn't mean I'm not available next weekend. Um, or, Hey, I can help. I can lend you that money today, but I can help you with something else. So boundaries are supposed to be flexible in that way. So I think whatever type of boundaries a person needs to set, I hope they can always remember to keep it flexible and be mindful of 
what makes most sense to me in this moment, because that might be different than the boundaries I set last weekend. Mm -hmm. I like to think about boundaries as doors rather than walls, because I think a lot of people have this idea that boundaries have to be like very concrete walls, but no, if it's a door, then it can be open and closed. Right. So like you were saying, mm -hmm. I can't do that today, but maybe I can do that tomorrow. Or like, I, I'm not going to um, be able to commit to everything right now. Yet let me get back to you. Right. So being able to open and close that door rather than having this firm wall that can't be flexible. I, I love that. Yes. I think that is such a great analogy to help us understand, to be flexible with our boundaries. And I think it's probably necessary to also recognize the reasons, not only maybe we were not taught how to set healthy boundaries, um, but we might also have a fear of setting healthy boundaries because we're afraid of, again, that loss of that relationship. And I, I know that a lot of times boundaries can be intimidating because we're afraid of its consequences. We're afraid of how, what would happen next? Will I disappoint that person? Would I let them down? Would they be upset with me? And we also want to kind of feel those feelings and, and be able to, like I, we were saying earlier, I'm afraid to set these boundaries. And at the same time, I know I need to, mm -hmm. like, I know this may hurt your feelings and I'm still going to, you know, say them and I need to tolerate that maybe tolerate that discomfort. That would be probably another piece for some people is that I always, again, tell my clients, like, please be prepared that when you're setting your boundaries, the whole world will not have their arms wide open, ready to welcome you. They are going to fight back, question it, disagree with it, disapprove of it, make you feel bad about it. And we have to write that way of discomfort until we find a resolution or we find a compromise or we obviously again that that issue comes to an end it doesn't mean that the relationships have to end uh because of this discomfort we just have to write it out long enough to see how the relationship can evolve definitely can be uncomfortable when we're first doing it and it seems like Again, why self-compassion is so important always, but especially if we're going to be working through perfectionism is because it's so difficult, right? It's going to be so uncomfortable. So you have, have to be able to have compassion with yourself and to be able to work through such difficult things. Yes, yes. And if I may, I wanted to share this idea. So speaking about like this fear, we're going to have to set boundaries and the discomfort. Um, it's mm -hmm. from the book called Unf your boundaries. I don't know if you guys have heard that book. It's a very small book. Um, mm -hmm. Harper is the first name of the author. And sorry, the rest is not coming to me right now. Um, but okay. again, <laughs> if, if they want to Google it on F uh, your boundaries. And okay. again, it's a very easy, read, uh, easy to read book. And what I love, love in that book is she, she has taken a loving kindness meditation. And for those people that might not be familiar, loving kindness meditation is a meditation we do where we give ourselves and somebody else. And, and if you want to, uh, other people, a loving, uh, a love and kindness, and it's always in a may I statement. So what she did in the, in the book is that she takes this loving kindness meditation and she applies boundaries to that. So what that looks like is just to give some example, 
make sure obviously you are in a comfortable position and you have kind of taken some deep breaths where you are feeling a bit centered. And then you would want to say to yourself, may I, may I be respected for my needs? May I have the courage to speak my truth? May I have the patience to explore my boundaries? May I be accepted for what my boundaries are? And in these words, we are using compassion and and honoring that we might feel intimidated to set those boundaries and yet also giving ourselves that support that we have the right to set those boundaries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think Beautiful. setting boundaries can be so difficult. Sorry, Em. But, no, it's okay. Uh, I was just complimenting how beautiful the loving kindness meditations can be and how um, powerful they can be as well. Mm-hmm. And it, boundaries are such a foundational part of, you know, so many things with mental health. And I think it's so fascinating just after our conversation, how perfectionism is really linked to boundaries, self-compassion, anxiety, depression, relationship issues. It just extends so much further than, you know, where our conversation initially started out, how being, you think perfectionism is like a type A type person getting good grades and all that good stuff. So it's just so fascinating how it can really touch so many different parts of our lives and mental health and physical health. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm hoping some of these conversations really help people is to unpack all the different ways perfectionism may be showing up in their lives and all the different areas of their lives it may be showing up. Again, it's not perfectionism is not a problem we deal with when, when it comes to tasks and our to-do list. It, it's a, it's a, it's a problem we may have to address when it comes to our physical health and the way we are relating to food and body. It may be, again, the way we are dealing with our emotions, if we are struggling with that good versus bad emotions, and or perfectionism may show up in your relationships uh, from work relationship to couples and parenting. So speaking of like that type A personality or the typically thinking perfectionists are type A people, I definitely want to also connect boundaries with time because we also have to set some boundaries with our times and decide for ourselves that I am going to give myself one hour to work on this project and that's it. And after that one hour, I'm either going to move on to something else that I like to work on or I'm going to, again, leave my house and go for a walk or go out and work on my garden or go and cook because I want to take care of my body as well. So I think we it's important to set boundaries with time and our tasks and the things that we are doing on a one-on-one, like on our own. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's so important. And this whole conversation has been so enlightening and interesting. And we so appreciate you coming on and sharing about perfectionism and all the complexities of it. And also some tools and how to start navigating your relationship with perfectionism. Well, thank you so much. I had such a wonderful time and this was such a great conversation. Thank you again for having yes. me here. We'd love to have you back sometime to talk about perfectionism and we could probably do a whole episode on like perfectionism and body image specifically. I know that's something Emily and I are 
super interested in. So we'll have to get that one on the books. I think it'd be super interesting. And our podcast is all about education. So I think you did an amazing job. So thank you so much for joining us.